0: This morning we bring to a close our four-week sermon on the Lord's Supper. And we began this series on the Lord's Supper by looking at the way the Corinthians, 2,000 years ago, the believers at the Church of Corinth, were perverting this ordinance. They were approaching the sacred table as if it was a time to self-indulge, as if it was a private dinner party. The rich, selfishly ostracizing the poor, by not sharing the food that they brought, and even gorging on food and drink to the point that some were getting drunk in church at communion. Though at some point during the meal, communion was taken, their hearts were not right throughout the the day, they were not focused on the Lord, they were not focused on the Lord's sacrifice, they were not focused on the Lord's people, nor fellowship with them. We went on to see in verses 23 through 26 of 1 Corinthians 11 why the Lord's table is so significant. This was nothing new to most of you. The bread symbolizing His sacrifice for us. The blood symbolizing the new covenant. All of it, a proclamation of His death as well as a looking forward to His glorious return. With both the perversion and the practice of the Lord's table under our belt, we could fully understand the reason for the warning that we saw in verses 27 through 29. Discipline, chastisement, punishment for the believer who takes the bread and cup in an unworthy manner. Namely, an unworthy manner being to not think highly of what the elements represent. That is our Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. Part of this is reflected in not dealing with sin before partaking of the elements? Were we serious about the sobriety and severity and the wonders of what the elements in the Lord's table represent, then we would come cleansed, confessed, repented. And as we bring this study to a close this morning... We see the practical and very real ramifications among the Corinthians for their perversion of the supper, as well as some responses for us today, though we are in a different culture, same God, same communion, same sacrifice, same worship. So I invite you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll finish off this passage by looking at verses 30 through 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 34. Follow along as I read. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Last week, in looking at the warning, we saw three steps in preparing for communion. Verses thirty through thirty-four are a continuation of that thought, but focuses more on what we need to know in are preparing for communion. And so this morning, I want to give you four truths to recognize in preparing for communion. Four truths to recognize in preparing for communion, also known as the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. The four truths to recognize in preparing for communion begin with, number one, the present example. The present example that is the example of the Corinthians, what is happening presently in their church. The first truth to recognize in preparing it for communion or in communion is reality of what God did to some of the Corinthians in their discipline. The discipline we talked about last week is very real. It has very real physical circumstances and ramifications. And verse 30 again says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Although God's discipline takes many forms, here we see that it all impacted physical health. He begins with this phrase, for this reason, which connects us again back to the warning. It clearly indicates that what he is about to say was a direct result of the Corinthians not approaching the Lord's Supper with reverence. In other words, they had taken the elements in an unworthy manner. They are thereby, as we saw last week, guilty of dishonoring the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Again, in light of last week's passage, they failed to examine themselves. Or if they did, they did nothing about the sin that was discovered. In verse 29, we saw that they drank judgment to themselves This judgment for the believer is not condemnation, it is not eternal punishment, it is discipline, chastisement, it is to help us as believers in this life to learn and grow. What form did this take? He says weakness, sickness, and some sleep. Weak is general weakness, it was that they became sickly. I want to remind you that this is a different time. There were no modern hospitals. There was no modern medicine. Having a fever could kill you. There was not even a simple fever reducer like Tylenol. And so to be, have general weakness or to be sickly was a very big deal. The second, he says, is sick. This would be actual illness. And sleep, the third one, is euphemism for physical death. Yes, God took the lives of some because they took of communion in an unworthy manner. This is the judgment spoken of in verse 29. A verdict has been pronounced against those who have not judged the body rightly and thus took of communion in an unworthy manner. It is a direct punishment from a loving father to a cherished child because of their wrongdoing, because of their sin. And this wasn't a one-off situation for them. He says, many are weak, sick, and a number, sleep. Many means a sufficient number, a large amount. Probably not the majority, but enough. Now when we talk about the discipline of God, we understand that there are sins that sometimes have a direct negative consequence. In other words, if this a result occurred because of your sin, not many people would say, oh, that's discipline from God. That just, that just happens. That happens to people who do those things, from broken relationships to sexually transmitted diseases to loss of income and even death, drunk driving, anger at the workplace. It has consequences sometimes. But what we're talking about here is not just coincidental. It's not even a natural or even a logical consequence in the realm of this world. Specifically, it's not that those in Corinth, uh, see, you, you ate too much and you got sick to your stomach. Again, no modern medicine, even over-the-counter stuff like amodium uh, or pepto back there. So you eat too much, it could have some pretty serious ramifications, especially consider the hygiene of food back then. That's not what this is... Talking about It isn't that some of the rich got drunk and got in an accident on the way home, fell and hit their head on a rock, or drove their chariot off the road and died. This is a punishment directly from the Lord for their sin. It is holy judgment. Perhaps it did take the form of a, an accident on their way home or sickness from the food. But you understand it was directly from God. It wasn't God sitting back and saying, see, natural consequence. No, it was God saying, I am going to do this to teach my children to not do this again, to keep them from committing the sinful act once again. We understand this. We also understand that for the believer, again, this is not eternal damnation. It is chastisement. It is discipline. But it is still a form of holy judgment. I want to give you two points of clarification. First is that we understand that when we discipline in our homes, it is to teach the child. I understand that we often, or I should say sometimes, hopefully rarely, discipline because we're angry, because we had a bad day. But generally, when discipline is done biblically, it is to keep the child from committing that wrong again or to teach them from doing something that will harm themselves. The basic premise is simple. They learn that certain behaviors incur some sort of pain inflicted by the parent with the goal of them ending the behavior before they experience the inevitable painful consequences of their sin either from God or society. And this is what God does here with sickness we want to make sure they don't do it again because if I were to discipline my child because he keeps reaching up to the flames on the stove, it is because I don't want him to experience the even greater pain of burning his fingers or the greater pain later on of being arrested for a crime. We discipline our children so they listen to authorities. They listen to adults so that bad things will not happen later in school, later with government officials. And this is what God is doing. There is a difference, of course, that he is the ultimate authority. And so he teaches us to be Christ-like. He teaches us to avoid his own wrath later on, which we'll see later in the passage. There's a second point of clarification I want to make here, which is about death. How does one learn to not make a mistake again if they're dead? Well, we have to look at the big picture to understand this. The point of discipline is for us to learn, yes, to be sure the death of some will teach those who remain. If we understand that God disciplined some in our church by taking their lives, I would assure you the rest of us would wake up a little bit. But what about the one whose life was taken? To understand this, we must remember the ultimate goal of all instruction through discipline, which is God's glory. Not just changing behavior, not just protecting the child, not just so you can obey as a parent, but for God's glory. Because everything's for God's glory in the Christian's life. There are times then when a believer's life is so bad, so sinful, that Quite simply, he is no longer fit to represent God on this earth, and so for God's own glory, he takes that person's life. Remember, these are believers, so by virtue of Christ's work, they are fit for heaven, but because of their own sin, they are not fit to be an ambassador on earth any longer. This is not unheard of in the New Testament. A powerful example is given to us right at the beginning of the early church and the new covenant in two individuals you're very familiar with, Ananias and Sapphira. All the believers were to sell all of their belongings to give to the church. And God struck them down because they held back money and then they lied about it, both individually, lying separately, not they weren't together when they lied to the apostles They were supposed to give it to the church, and they didn't. They lied about it, and in Acts 5, 1 through 11, God struck them down immediately, clearly discipline from the Lord, clearly a lesson for the church. Speaking of repentance or the lack thereof, there's another point of clarification I want to make that addresses the question, well, why can unbelievers do what Christians are disciplined for? Because their punishment is coming, and it is eternal. And also, they don't represent Christ on earth. And they are therefore not subject to the same expectations. They are not expected to be salt and light. When I was living as an American expatriate in Europe, I was not held to the same expectations of another American expat who was the ambassador because he was held to an accountability as he represented the United States of America as well as the president of the USA. So I was not held to the same expectations. And so you understand that as ambassadors of Christ, we are held to a higher standard as we represent and present him on this earth. As your friend... I want to tell you that God won't do this today. I want to tell you that God wouldn't take your life for unrepentant sin. But I can't tell you that because it's not in the Scriptures. Uh, Perhaps I would have uh, some sort of fact or theology to lean on if this happened in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, whereas we are in the New Covenant But the Corinthians and Ananias and Sapphira were in the church, the new covenant, the church age. So if you were to ask me out of fear, would he really do this today? Though I would like to tell you, no, I can't say that. I can't tell you he will, but I definitely can't tell you he won't. This is new covenant discipline for the believer, so theologically, doctrinally, biblically, all we can say is if it happened then, it can very well happen today. You say, are you trying to scare us? I don't need to, do I? I don't think I need to. Because God is one to be feared. And so, The first truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the present example of what is happening to the Corinthians. Quite simply, that is, discipline is real. A second truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the pardoning examination. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves rightly we would not be judged the pardoning examination we talked about this in depth last week when we looked at self examination as a crucial step in preparing for communion back in verse 28 here paul changes his emphasis he says that if they had performed the self examination then they would not have received the judgment they wouldn't would not have been judged they would not have experienced the discipline In other words, all the weakness, all the sickness and death mentioned in verse 30 would not have occurred if those individuals had judged themselves properly, they would have been preserved. And what that means for the Corinthians going forward and for us today is a simple aspect of discipline in any form, whether in your home, whether by a police officer, whether by God, avoid the sin and you won't receive the discipline. The beauty of this lies in the fact that God is holy and righteous. We do not receive discipline based on a whim or his anger over someone else or because he's grumpy because he didn't get enough sleep or had a bad day at work or long commute. He is holy. He is omniscient. He knows all things. If you or I receive discipline from the Lord, you know it's out of love. You know it's because He wants us to do better, to excel still more. He doesn't need to pull you over and figure out if you are doing something wrong by giving you a sobriety test or checking if your odometer or speedometer is working. He knows. He's not guessing. He doesn't need to put the cuffs on book you into the police station, go through a, 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 a long legal process only to find out tens of thousands of dollars later and months later that you actually were innocent. No. He knows instantly. He is a great judge. He knows. He judges based on holiness and righteousness based on His Word. And when we need discipline, when we truly need it, when we deserve it, we know that we will receive it. And when we don't do anything to warrant discipline, then there's no chance of receiving the discipline. Some of us have experienced this with our parents. At first it was right or wrong, but then we didn't know. You, some of you were disciplined just because Dad had a bad day. Mom and dad had an argument and she's not through with dad and so she goes after you. It has nothing to do with right or wrong. And so there are many people who grow up in a state of confusion. It isn't right or wrong. It's, okay, look, how hard did he pull into the driveway and slam on the brakes? Look at his face when he comes home from work. Does he throw down his briefcase or does he greet us? Not with God. Never with God. He is holy and righteous and good. He is fair. When a finite human is in charge, be it a parent, a boss, a government official, you can't always be sure. But with God, you can be. And he says we need to judge ourselves. To judge oneself rightly or truly means to recognize what our calling is In terms of behavior according to the Scriptures, are you obeying? Our obligations as Christians always stem from our status as children, children of God. It all flows out of that. We are those who are distinct as those who have died to self and now alive in Christ, freed from the bondage of sin, and regenerated into a new creation. The saved, the elect, the chosen, the children of God. And with that status comes a subsequent lifestyle and commitment, perceiving and honoring that, what this judging or examination entails. Our sin, our need for holiness, the sacrifice of Christ. And you might have noticed that the way to avoid the judgment by judging ourselves rightly goes hand in hand with the two points of self-examination from last week. First, you need to see if you're truly saved. And then if you are, you need to see if you are in sin. Recognize your salvation, then deal with your sin. Because in recognizing your salvation, you must also recognize how you must live in light of the fact that you are saved. The Bible is very clear about this. There, there, the Bible is so clear about the importance of works because of your faith that some of the reformers were confused and wanted to take out books of the Bible because there's such an emphasis on works. But we understand what God is saying is not earning your salvation, but because of your faith, there must be works. The question, show me your works and I'll tell you about your faith because there's got to be fruit, real fruit. And that's what we're talking about here. Recognize your salvation and then make sure that there's good fruit. More to the point, when you do these things, then you will not come to the Lord's table unworthily and thus in taking the element, you avoid judgment, discipline. It's not that you have to be perfect or sinless. That is impossible, this side of heaven but to confess your sin, to deal with your sin, to receive the forgiveness, the pardon from God who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess them, 1 John 1.9. I do want to point out also the we that Paul uses here. He is not exempt even though he is an apostle, a church planter, a pastor, a church leader, a pillar of the church. He, too, must practice careful discernment of his own spiritual condition, how much more you and I. So the second truth to recognize in preparing for communion is the pardoning examination. There is a third, and that is the protecting experience. The protecting experience. Look again at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Paul continues by explaining why we are disciplined. He connects the concept of judging with that of discipline. We've done this, or we've seen this all along, but here is where he uses the two terms, one to explain the other. Our judgment is discipline. And we've seen that the word judge does not refer to external, uh, eternal condemnation here. Basically means a decision based on an act, the act being your sin. For the believer, the decision is discipline, rather than eternal condemnation. Here's a helpful way to look at it. In an American court of law, there is a judgment at the end of any trial or case. And the judgment can involve different levels of punishment. There are punishments that the judge may lay on you to teach you a lesson. Sometimes we call it simply a slap on the wrist. Maybe it's a fine, a fine that's not easy to pay. Maybe it hurts your pocketbook a little bit. So you will learn your lesson, but then you leave the courtroom, you get in your car, and you exist as you always existed, hopefully having learned your lesson to pay your parking tickets not to speed or whatever it may be. Or he can lay down a life sentence or capital punishment to indicate that your punishment is permanent with no continuation of life as you know it. One is discipline. Slap on the wrist, you go free. Learn your lesson. The other is condemnation. Your life is over. As believers, ours is discipline. Not because our sin is any less heinous but because it is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, discipline serves an educational function. It's a positive thing in that it conforms us to the image of Christ. And for that to happen, we must learn from it and not just grin and bear it. Yeah, I'm going through discipline. I think this trial is discipline for that thing that I did and never dealt with. You're just like, if I know it's not going to last forever, the doctor says I'm going to get better. It's not terminal, so you just grin and bear it, and then as soon as it's it's over, you're like, okay, good, back to normal. With no lasting response, no lasting change. Then you've wasted the discipline. You've wasted the trial. You've wasted the difficulty. And hear me clearly, I'm not saying that every trial in your life is discipline from the Lord. It may be, but that's not what every trial is. But my point is that we must learn from it. How frustrated, are, uh, how frustrated are we as parents that we've disciplined, we've disciplined, whether it's spanking or timeout or loss of screen time or loss of dessert or whatever it may be. And yet they do it again and again, and you think, when will they learn? Why won't they learn? We don't want to be like that. Children are children. We can't act like children. We must learn. We must learn from God's Word. We must learn from the discipline. We must change and excel still more. Be holy, for our God is holy. When it comes to disciplining children, this is part of parental training. It's a crucial aspect of what causes a youth to grow into a mature, responsible adult. We discipline our children because we want that to happen. And we want that to happen because we love them. Because we love them. You ever heard that phrase, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? When you're a parent, you get that. Because you love them. And you know because of your love for them, you need to discipline them, but you don't like to see them in pain. You don't like to see them crying. But when you look at the big picture, you understand. You understand you love them so much that you're willing for them to endure difficulties at your, heart, at your hand so that the future of their lives is better for them, even if it's a life that you'll never witness, even if it's at school where you are not present in raising their kids when you are in heaven, because you love them. And it's the same with God's discipline of us. Hebrews twelve, six through seven. Turn there if you can. Hebrews chapter twelve verses six through seven. This is a great reminder of what we should do but a greater reminder of what God does. Hebrews 12:6 through 7. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Notice, though it is an extra-biblical application of this, but notice the verse does not say, those whom he disciplines, he loves. In other words, if he disciplines you, if he disciplines you, rest assured it's because he loves you. No, he says those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. If you are his child, he will discipline you. If he loves you, he will discipline you. And by the way, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are both of those, a child and an object of his eternal love. So, like we do with our children, God does perfectly with his children. That is, he shows fatherly love through correction severely when necessary. It all indicates his great love and concern for us, his body. The alternative back in 1 Corinthians 11 is damnation. And that's what Paul says here. He disciplines us so that we would change and grow and not incur the condemnation that the world receives. Now, we understand that our Eternity is secure as believers, but this is a great reminder of the holiness of God, the wrath of God, but the loving discipline of God for his children. You see, chastening, discipline, pushes the sinner back to righteous behavior. In other words, it encourages us to choose holiness over sin. And again, the, 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 the concept is the same as in your home. I would rather repent of that sin than continue enduring this punishment from the Lord. Even, as we saw earlier, the discipline that results in death is a wake-up call for those of us who remain. And though it may be painful, it is proof of our Heavenly Father's love and in fact proves, from Hebrews 12, that we are His children. Again, as true believers, you cannot lose your salvation. That's not what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying, nor will you face eternal condemnation. But understand that the fact that you are his children, the fact that you will not receive condemnation is God's mercy. It's his mercy. It is him withholding, because of Jesus Christ, his wrath that you have earned. Not that in some sort of lottery that you have been chosen, that you have earned. The wages of sin is death. The wages. What are wages? We call it a salary. We call it hourly pay that you have earned by your work. We have earned condemnation. But because of Jesus Christ, we are no longer condemned. This is the mercy of God. And so we can see how discipline, because we are saved is also the mercy of God right here in 1 Corinthians 11. And with all of this in mind, what should we do in relation to communion? For the Corinthians, the expectation is clear. And though there's not a direct uh, application to us because we're not having a large meal at communion, we don't have the rich that are hoarding food and letting other people go hungry, there are still aspects of what we're about to read that we can apply to our situation today. Our final point is the plain expectation. We are looking at truths to recognize and preparing for communion. We've seen the present example of the discipline of the Lord in the midst of the Corinthians. We've seen the pardoning examination, the self-examination that would have kept them from judgment and could keep us from judgment, the protecting experience, and finally, the plain expectation. Verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul's first point in verse 33 addresses the problem that we saw back in verse 21 regarding the wealthy eating first, They were treating the Lord's Supper as a party and wanted to get a head start in their feasting so they could party with their other rich people. This is at church, by the way. And when Paul calls them to wait for one another, it's not just about uh, waiting until everyone gets there right that's what we do it's it's you go out to eat with a group at a restaurant it's common courtesy uh, to wait till everyone gets their food before you start that's not what he's talking about here he's not just talking about good manners it's waiting until everyone the rich and the poor and everyone in between they all get there and are seated at the table so they can eat together But how can they eat together if some come without food? And now you get it. Wait for one another so that you can divide the food up and share so that everyone can eat. Instead of eating all the food beforehand, and by the time the poor get there, there's no food left. Remember, the wealthy did not want to share. This is a call for the Corinthians to stop overlooking the lowly or despised of society, the poor financially, the have-nots, those with nothing. Come with much so you can share with others. They knew they were going to be there. That's why they went early. They planned to go early with their other rich buddies knowing that the poor would come because they didn't want to share. They didn't want the poor people to crash their party, to make them feel bad, to ruin things for them. Let's eat first, guys. And then when everyone comes, then we can do the bread and cup and celebrate the fellowship we have in Jesus Christ. Ironic. Gross. Gross. And so, if you wait, this not only helps them to be sacrificial and considerate, but also keeps them from shaming the less fortunate, which we saw Paul specifically mention they were doing. So, what does this mean for us? Can I I, uh, summarize all of this? Verse 33, what they're supposed to do in a word? Hospitality. Hospitality. So important is this to the Lord that it is a requirement of an elder and a command for all believers in 1 Peter 4.9. More specifically, 1 Peter 4.9 says, be hospitable without complaint. complaint. <sighs> Fine. I know I'm supposed to be hospitable, but here you go. Or you do it with a smile. Hey, this is the last slice, but I want you guys to have it. Then as you're brushing your teeth, honey, can you believe they took it? Did I not say the word last loud enough? Next time I'll just open the fridge and go, see, no more pie, no more pie, last piece. Right? We smile and then we complain, or we complain in our hearts. Yeah, we can take them, but uh, their kids always make such a mess. Hospital, hospitable with complaint. We need to be hospitable without complaint. Paul continues in verse 34, 1 Corinthians 11. If you're hungry, he says, eat before you come. Well, doesn't that defeat the purpose of a meal together then? No, because you know the context. You know what they were doing. But also you need to understand that the Lord's Supper, and again, it's not something that we uh, celebrate, or we it's not the way we celebrate communion in this church. I don't mean, know many churches that do it like the early church did it. We used to have a potluck after communion. That's not what this is talking about. This was a meal that was incorporated into communion as with the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And so it was primarily to fellowship and celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not to have a fancy elaborate meal, not to fill their bellies. It was for fellowship. As we said a few weeks ago, they were to keep their dinner parties and their related behavior in the privacy of their own homes. And as we said a few weeks ago, that doesn't mean Paul is saying it's okay to do some of the stuff you're doing in private, getting drunk, for example. He's just saying, don't come to feast. Because if you were invited to a wealthy person's home for dinner, you might want to skip lunch. We're talking about the wealthy here in Roman times, right? You've seen these homes with the big marble columns in front of their houses. They put on a party. They put on a feast. In fact, some of you have done this. As you're preparing a meal and you invite your friends over, you tell them, come hungry. I made a lot of food, and it's going to be good. And so that's totally appropriate in certain circumstances to go to someone's home because they said, hey, I'm going to make a lot. I want you to come hungry. Sometimes we're even told, skip lunch, because this is going to be a feast. You know you're going to be fed well. You know you're going to be fed a lot. But that's not the case for the Lord's Supper at the church. Yes, it was a meal. But like that special holiday meal you have once a year, you see your family once a year, it wasn't about the food. It was about family. It was about family. And you come to the Lord's Supper to satisfy spiritual hunger, not physical hunger. Yes, you'll get food. It's not sinful to eat. You'll get food, but you got to understand that's not the point. And it shouldn't be your focus. If we were to do something like this, even if we had a potluck, and again, it's very different than what we're talking about here, and you know the potluck, lands on the day that we do communion in a way for us to kind of do what they were doing here. And all week you're like, ooh, let me check up, the, check out the Google Doc. Who signed, Who's bringing what? Ooh, I can't wait. Instead of being on your knees confessing sin all week because of the glories and the severity of communion and its possible punishment in your life if you take it unworthily, then there's a problem. We're not talking about every Sunday here, but let me apply that. If it's all about, oh, I, yeah, finally, I got to see that person, they owe me money. Oh, they said they're going to bring me something. Oh, they have something for our kids. Oh, this is taking space. I keep forgetting to bring it to church to give it to that, that family that wanted it. Instead of saying, I'm going to fellowship. if it's just to see your friends, if it's just to see your, your, your grown children, your grandchildren, then you've missed the point of this. Be excited to fellowship. Be excited to help people, to get your money back, to give money to people, to see your kids, to see your family, to see your relatives. But that shouldn't be the main point. Just as here in the early church, yes, come, yeah, you'll get some food. Don't worry, especially the poor. It may be the only meal, substantial meal they get all week. But understand the point of why we're getting together. And when they treat the Lord's Supper like a common meal, or when we treat communion or church like just a normal get-together, like we go play ultimate frisbee in the park or hang out and have a meal at someone's house. Then Paul says, you come together for judgment. And the way he phrases it, he's saying, what's the point? Why come together for judgment? Deal with your sin. Why would you want to come to church, the greatest source of blessing in terms of a gathering of people, why would you want to come for judgment? Why would you you spend $2,000 on those tickets to the Super Bowl just so you can watch the game on your phone the whole time? Why would you pay $200 to get into Disneyland just because you wanted to go to the store and buy overpriced Mickey ears? You've missed the whole point. You've missed the whole point. And when we miss the whole point, we come for judgment rather than blessing. And what's the point? Part of the point for us is to be blessed. And when you look at what Paul's saying, it's pretty easy. He says, Corinthians, you want to avoid judgment? Some of you are sick. Some of you have died. You want to avoid this? Eat first, then come. (laughs) That's it. Eat first, then come. You know, for us, sometimes having the right heart in approaching the Lord's table or approaching the Lord is as simple as deferring to another time. It's as simple as praying a prayer of confession. It's as simple as saying, hey, you know that, that thing I said the other day? I'm sorry. It's not that hard. And when we look at them, we say, yeah, just eat first. Why wouldn't you just eat first? This includes all sorts of principles that I'm sure Paul taught you about the poor and giving and sharing and loving and focusing and worshiping. But even as I said, it's as simple as saying, I'm sorry, some of you said or thought, not that easy. And then the issue that we need to repent of is not the inability to say, I'm sorry, it's your pride. It's your lack of appreciating fellowship. It's your insisting that the other person apologize first. Because this will all be done with so long as I am right. You need to take the high ground. The high ground doesn't mean you concoct some sort of sin in your life that you never have ever committed. But if they're upset at you, maybe it's how you said something, maybe when you said something, take the high ground. Apologize. Because what's most important is that reconciliation, that relationship be fixed. What's least important is your pride. That, that, that's so low on the list it's not on the list because it's sin. God doesn't even want it. He says repent of it. And it's not just apologies. It can be anything. Just eat first. And you can see how this would have been hard for them. But no, these are my buddies. No, no, no. I've been, I've been saving this, this special cut of venison for my people who appreciate it. Those poor people, they'll eat anything. I'm not going to give them this. Especially not at the Lord's Supper. That's special. It's pride. But it's, in big picture, it's really not that hard. Finally, very quickly, he ends by referring to other issues he will address when he comes in person. We don't know what they are. We have no way of knowing what they are. If someone definitively tells you this is the issues he's talking about, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't tell us. And so, four truths to recognize in preparing for communion, the present example, discipline is real. The parting examination, deal with your sin, examine yourself. The protecting experience, judge yourself so you won't be judged the plain expectation. It's very simple. It's very plain. You know what it is. People always ask me, how do I know if I'm sinning? You know. You know. If you're a believer, you know. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a Holy Spirit-inspired conscience. You have the Word of God. You know. And I don't want to take things lightly. But the reality is, if you're asking me that, chances are you know you're in sin and you want some sort of pastoral approval that you're not. And I just, I can't give you that. We've covered a lot over the past four weeks and I hope that this has heightened your sensitivity to what communion is. There may be some deep-rooted sin that needs to be dealt with something that, as I explained last week, that you may have become so comfortable with and your family is so used to that you are no longer convicted or feel guilty. You don't even think it's sin anymore. Maybe there's a long-lost relationship that needs to be rekindled or forgiven. You know that sometimes taking communion unworthily and having and harboring sin in your life is forgiving someone who may not even be alive anymore? Forgiveness is powerful. Maybe there's a depth of worship that needs to be rediscovered, rekindled, discovered for the first time. This is true of any day of the Christian life not just the Lord's Day or Communion Sunday. But when it comes to the Lord's Table, I want to close this series and everything that I have said by giving you a simple phrase that summarizes everything that should be foundational to everything and applying everything that we have said and learned over these past four Sundays. A phrase that should drive all of your application from these sermons. A phrase that summarizes these verses that Paul has said, and the phrase is this. It is, after all, the Lord's table and not yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are invited to partake of your table, to be reminded of what is an experiential and practical reality in our lives. What a blessing. What grace. What mercy. Help us to heed the warnings that we saw last week. Help us to prepare properly. Guard us against coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Help us to swallow our pride. Help us to have a high view of you. Help us to hate our sin and not hate those who we think have offended us, but to hate our own sin, to deal with our own hearts. Before the Lord's table, but every day of our lives, may we take these things seriously for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we close in song.